MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 152 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. As you listen to this episode, it's Wednesday, December 20th, 2023. But of course, we record these episodes on Monday. And so we have a flurry of breaking news that we're going to be covering today, along with the script I had originally written for us, uh, Pete, but now has been completely blown apart and amended. So welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. I'm Allison Gill. Hey, Allison, I'm Pete Strzok, and it's happy to have it blown up because it's blown up by a series of more Trump losing. And there's there's <laughs> never enough of that to go around, but we got a ton of it today. So as promised, we're going to cover the Hunter Biden motions to dismiss, along with Joe Biden's zero evidence impeachment inquiry that was just voted Ooh. out. And we'll have updates on the New York Attorney General's $250 million civil fraud suit, the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, and a preliminary exam of six of the indicted fraudulent electors in Michigan. And of course, we're going to discuss the nearly $150 million judgment against Rudy Giuliani in the Shea Moss Ruby Freeman defamation case. And breaking news, they're suing him again. We'll talk about that. Uh, we have multiple aspects of the Fulton County DA's case to cover against Trump and his co-conspirators, including breaking news. Mark Meadows has been rejected by the 11th Circuit to remove his case to federal court. So many little bits of breaking news today that uh, we can put in the good news column. Uh, good news if you're like pro-justice. Bad news if you're Donald Trump. But first, we want to thank our new patrons. Thank you so much to Christy O'Byrne, Janet from Jersey, Krista, uh, Goto, and the Kara or the Kara. I'm not sure if it's pronounced like Kara or Irene Kara pronounces her name, but mm. the Kara, the mm. Kara. And uh, we really, really can't do this show without our patrons. Thank you for pledging. Thank you for your continued support of independent media. Uh, you know, uh, Pete, I, this is totally off topic, but I had a great discussion with Phil Williams from Channel 5 Nashville, um, News Channel 5 Nashville. Uh, he's, you know, he's the local investigative reporter um, that exposed a bunch of, you know, all the the MAGA candidates um, running for mayor of Franklin, uh, Andy Ogles, who's in the U.S. Congress. We had a great talk about independent and, and local investigative journalism. And y'all, by being patrons of this show, you are supporting that, which is supporting democracy. So we really appreciate it. We will thank you on April 20th in D.C. We're going to treat you to dinner and drinks, cocktails and mocktails. 
Uh, we'll send out information and RSVP stuff uh, in the new year. Don't worry, I will give you plenty of notice when those RSVPs go out because it will be first come first serve. But thank you so much for being patrons. We really appreciate it. All right, let's start with the big news. Well, there's a lot of big news today, but some some of the bigger news. A jury of eight new uh, people in D.C. unanimously awarded Shane Moss and Ruby Freeman nearly $150 million in their defamation suit against Rudy Giuliani. There was an audible gasp in the courtroom when the four-person read aloud the $75 million award in punitive damages for the two. Moss and Freeman were each awarded roughly $16 million for defamation and $20 million each for emotional distress. Uh, Rudy will appeal, he says, but assuming he loses that appeal, can he even pay this amount? Like... I, no. I don't know that he can. Um, I don't think he has uh, $148 million. But, you know, I don't, Pete, I don't think it's about the money. I think it's about sending a message. As they said in closing arguments, uh, Moss and Freeman's lawyer said in closing arguments, you need to send a message to people who would do this in the future, you know? Yeah. And, you know, the the couple of aspects of that. One, you can't declare bankruptcy and get out of this. So for as long as he is alive, they can pursue that money, whether it is garnishing wages, whether it is uh, seizing assets. That is an amount that will never, ever go away. Now, of course, he's going to appeal. There's some question about, you know, at the appellate level, whether that uh, verdict and amount is reduced or not. But it's still there's, you know, they asked Going into this, Shamos and Ruby Freeman asked for what, like forty some odd million dollars, and and Rudy's attorney said, "Oh, if you do that, you're gonna, it's it, it will it will kill him financially." Civil, and, civil and, death penalty. And the civil, and, and the jury said, "Oh, forty. Okay, let's tack on another hundred million dollars to that." So it, it <laughs> clearly, you know, there it, <laughs> there's so many. If you look at the actual, the 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 sheet that it lists out on the count and the amounts for each defendant, and there's so many zeros on it. <laughs> just, I, mean, I counted them. They're like 30-some-odd zeros and all the numbers that uh, they Yeah, somebody they was like, awarded. why did it take them a day? Well, they had to write all those zeros down. That's there's, what... a, there's a lot of math. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the, the 15 to 43 million they were looking for was in defamation damages. Uh, and, and you know, I, I talked about this. I said, they're also asking for emotional distress and punitive, and they it will be more than 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 that. Um, I didn't know. I thought it could go into the to the hundreds of millions. I, but I I mean, this is just an incredible amount. Yeah. And I do think it will send a message to other people in the future. Uh, to keep them from, uh, you know, attacking election workers and, and defaming people. But apparently it didn't send a message to Rudy because he went out and defamed the two again. And this is some of that breaking news. Yeah, repeatedly. You were talking about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss have filed another lawsuit against Giuliani for damages for the defamation that he said outside the courtroom on, on several days, December 11th and December 15th. And they're asking, and this is what I think is the is the real kicker here, a permanent injunction banning Rudy Giuliani, court order, saying Rudy Giuliani can can has to stop this behavior. And the thing about that is that that is an actionable order. If they get what they want here, because, you know, Rudy can go on defaming people and they can keep suing and trying to collect money. But a court order saying that you can't, barring you from doing this, is actionable. If he violates it, then he can be held in contempt. He can be jailed he, if he's not already jailed for January 6th. He can be jailed. It can be fined. 
et cetera. So that is, you know, violating a court order, I think, is the key here. Yeah. And, and Beryl Howell, when the morning I attended his trial, before the witness, before the jury came in and before the expert witness came in, uh, they, the uh, Shamos and Ruby Freeman's, it was Mike Gottlieb, made the point that, look, Your Honor, you know, Rudy went out as well as his little PR sidekick and made all these comments about us and, you know, and who's paying us. And that's clearly against the court's uh, direction. And Howell made this sort of oblique comment about, you know, I granted monetary relief rather than, and perhaps the plaintiffs would have preferred that I granted other relief, I, you know, different sorts of sanctions, and which I took to mean, you know, potential Jail. You know, imprisonment for contempt. <laughs> and she said, you know, and they might have preferred that and kind of indicated, and I'm really rethinking that choice and decision on my part, particularly in light of his continued violations. So she's already laid the groundwork that, hey, Roots, I took it easy on you. I, you know, gave you money that you're never going to be able to pay rather than throw your ass in jail. However, that doesn't seem to be getting through your dye-stained skull, and perhaps I need to throw you in the slammer for a little bit. So, I'm curious that look, he has absolutely no capacity to shut the fuck up, right? He is no, going right. to talk about Shamos and Ruby Freeman, particularly going into an election year, he cannot help himself. So, the question I have is like whether or not based on this pattern of behavior and repeated warnings from Howell, whether or not she holds him in contempt. And you know, the, the last thing is in all of this had Rudy simply turned over discovery, he wouldn't mm. have had that directed verdict of guilty. He may or may not have been facing $148 million in uh, judgments. So what on earth does he have in his possession <laughs> that somehow is more harmful, more damaging than $148 million? I just and can't. now probably more. And right, right. No, easily we're going to get, I mean, the, the the amount it's going to take to, you know, they're asking for attorney fees in this new lawsuit. By the time they litigate through all this, there's easily, you know, several hundred thousand dollars plus. So they're going to, you know, bump up over 150. And appropriate damages. They're also asking for appropriate damages. Right, right. So this is like the Eugene case, and we'll talk about that in a minute, that they could get another however many tens of millions of dollars in additional damages, um, but I'm I'm real interested, like you, in that in that uh, court order, that possible injunction, because you know I didn't know that uh, Judge Howell was like kind of hinting that she was like well, I could have gone the jail route, but I didn't. Then this kind of is a is a door to do that to make that a, a court order that he has to follow. Otherwise, he he could face jail time. Right. And this is something, too, that, you know, he will stay on this stuff while he appeals. But this is one thing that keeps him in the district court and subjects him to the rulings and stipulations of, you know, the district court while he does appeal this. So it keeps him under some sort of sanction of on the behaving himself. And you yeah. know, we'll we'll see. But yeah, Ru so she Rudy's could actually do it under the first thing. She wouldn't even need a jury to or or to put an injunction. She can she already has that power to hold him in contempt. Right. And I don't know how, since they've asked for it in this new lawsuit, I don't know if she could, that you would do it under the former one rather than just uh, applying it, the relief they're seeking through this new lawsuit. But either way, I, Rudy's just, you know, proven incapable of, and he and his attorney are like not, they weren't talking to each other. They weren't even like, you know, kind of back to back, even though they're sitting side by side at the, at the uh, defense table. It, you know, I, I'm curious to see if he continues to have, uh, 
Shapley or whatever his name is as his attorney for this new lawsuit, or if he reaches down and maybe, hey, maybe Alina Hobble will come down and just you know, do <laughs> she's some, not do a some UFC fight. Get some, get some more, get some more. It's yeah, get some more sanctions and have Rudy oh, just go down to the there. traffic court, find a lawyer. Um, yes. Yes, you know. look for well, then you know that's why you've got Alina there for the parking lot law. So, <laughs> but hey, hey, while we're in D.C., while we're at the courthouse, let's go about four blocks to the east, about a quarter mile to the Capitol, where Republicans in the House voted along party lines to open an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Luke Broadwater <laughs> wrote the House voted on Wednesday to formally open an impeachment inquiry into President Biden pushing forward a year-long GOP investigation that has failed to produce evidence of anything approaching high crimes or misdemeanors. Republicans said the vote was needed to give them full authority to continue carrying out their investigation amid anticipated legal challenges from the White House. Democrats have denounced the inquiry as a fishing expedition and a political stunt. Democrats asked and, Republicans and to add, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Democrats wanted Republicans to add the phrase "open and transparent" to their impeachment resolution of President Biden, and every Republican voted nay. Who would who would want openness and, and transparency? And the same day, <laughs> Hunter Biden was on Capitol Hill and said he was willing to testify in public in front of the full committee pursuant to a subpoena. But the committee, shockingly enough, you know, comb or pile only wanted him to testify behind closed doors. That'll be difficult for the GOP to hold him in contempt, considering they didn't vote for the impeachment inquiry until after Hunter Biden was set to testify, and because Comer had initially invited Hunter to testify either behind closed doors or in public. And I think there's also an added fact that I don't think he was a... Uh, every, everybody didn't vote. So I think it was just uh, the Republicans who voted it out. So the, the Democrats, I don't think, had the option to vote no on it, not that they would have won, uh, but there were some procedural anomalies as well. But it, it's all crap. I, I just, there's nothing there. Everybody acknowledges there is nothing there. If you get any Senate Republican on the talk show circuit, they're all kind of embarrassed and sort of sheepishly shrug their shoulders and say, well, you know, the, the, the windowsill licking crayon eating morons over on the House side, you know, we can't control what they do. And this is a, a futile exercise. But I think the big question at the end of the day is, does this actually accrue to Joe Biden's benefit? Because, you know, he I can sit so. there- you know, and play out, look, this is this is BS. These Republicans in the House need to be voted out. They don't have anything. This is needless persecution. And he can play like, you know, the the victim of true nonsense, which is has been apparent for months and months and months. And now they're just formalizing uh, the emptiness of, you know, what they don't have. Yeah. And, and uh, like you said, every time they go on cable news shows, they're just they get taken apart. Simone Sanders, I think last night had Burchette or Burchette. How do you say his name? I, I'm not even sure. I don't even really care. Um, he, they had him on and she kept asking, what is the evidence that as president, Joe Biden committed a high crime or a misdemeanor? And he starts in on the $40,000 repayment and how Hunter Biden was working for China and that Five million came into his thing, and that must be where the forty thousand. And Simone Sanders is like, "Well, hang on, no, 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 no." When I asked you, Biden, since Biden has been president, because that's what, what an impeachment is. 
and you know, this whole 40,000 repayment for a truck or whatever it was, was back in 2017, 2018, he wasn't president. And she just kept pushing that. And, and Burchett finally like threw his hands up and he was like, well, I guess you don't want the truth or whatever. Like, I'm just talking about time being linear here, <laughs> sir. <laughs> Since Biden has been president, what high crimes and misdemeanors, blah, blah, blah. And it, it just can't be answered and it can never be answered. I've seen Comer on these shows. I've seen like none of them have anything other than this, you know, my son borrowed money and I paid him back. My brother borrowed money and I paid him back thing. Yeah. And and, and the word salad that gets them through the Newsmax or not the Newsmax, but like the, the RBS or the Fox News interviews with Maria Bartiromo, suddenly when faced with somebody who is actually thinking logically and asking reasonable questions, you know, the little babbling about the Pentaro who runs everything in the world, including the newspapers and meet triannually the secret. What stop, stop, stop. What, what are you talking about? That makes no sense. And, and they have no it, it suddenly it's like the needle coming off the record. There is no answer because the the nonsense line that is the the most wild, unsubstantiated, nonsensical theory that they've woven together on any scrutiny, on any logical, straightforward question falls apart because there's nothing there. And so, you know, and then, of course, every, you know, Comer runs back to conservative media with his tail between his legs and gets beat up by Laura Ingram or anybody else about, you know, why do, why do you appear to be such a, a moron whenever you go on these other cable news uh, or broadcast shows on Sunday morning? Why can't you be prepared? And he just kind of stammers and doesn't have an answer. Yeah, no, it's embarrassing, but they don't care because Donald Trump has told them to do this. You just investigate. You just say there's an investigation. Let me do the rest. He did it with the Department of Justice in 2020. He did it with Zelensky. Just say, just investigate. Just say you're investigating. You don't even really have to do anything. If you, in fact, even if you look like fools, all yes. I need for you to do is say that you're doing it. All right. Um, we have uh, a lot more to get to. <laughs> Trust me. But we have to take a quick break. Uh, right here for for a word from our sponsors. But again, thank you so much to our patrons. We'll have more new patrons to thank when we come back. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA, as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry, 
We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody, welcome back. More patrons to thank John Evans, Scott Campanella, Patty Powers, JP, a crime-fighting bean, uh, Catherine Gilbert-White is totally awesome at her job, and Edie Marie. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, again, we couldn't do this without you. All right, Pete, let's talk about Hunter Biden and the gun case, right? Because we know he's been indicted now on the tax stuff, but this is uh, the gun case. And we promised last week, because last week when we were recording, which was uh, we were recording on the 11th, four motions came in because that's when pretrial motions were due in this case from Hunter Biden's lawyer, Abby Lowell. And I wanted to talk about this now because it's closely related to the congressional impeachment inquiry, right? Because Hunter Biden was subpoenaed to testify there for that, um, not for anything he's criminally charged with. And so these mo- these motions to dismiss uh, filed by Hunter Biden's lawyer last week have a lot to do with what Congress does and what Congress says. So first, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the motion to dismiss for vindictive and selective prosecution and separation of powers, because that's an important point. It says here in the motion, the legal necessity of dismissing a selective and vindictive prosecution is clear, but defendants can seldom prove that such an improperly motivated prosecution has occurred because it is difficult to prove what is in the mind of prosecutors. But here, the prosecution has told us, Not only does the evidence show that Mr. Biden is the victim of a selective and vindictive prosecution, but, to use a phrase, that evidence is on steroids. Abby Lowell goes on to say, After five years of a thorough and what was and must continue to be a very expensive investigation, U.S. Attorney David Weiss, a holdover from the Trump administration, decided to resolve the entire investigation of Mr. Biden through a diversion agreement concerning a firearm charge and a separate plea agreement to resolve tax-related misdemeanor charges. And that is how Mr. Weiss would have chosen to resolve this case if left to exercise his own judgment. But the plea agreement drew sharp rebuke from Trump, House Republicans, and the far-right media because the facts in the case didn't change, and because the gun charge became even more difficult given the Fifth Circuit's recent ruling on this law. Uh, that Therefore, Abby Lowell says no other conclusion can be drawn other than Weiss buckled under political pressure to bring these charges. So he had the charges, he had a diversion agreement, everything was fine, that none of the facts changed. He brought the diversion agreement. All of a sudden, Trump is mad. Republicans in the House are mad. Right-wing media is mad. And now we bring charges. He asks to be a special counsel and charges are brought. So they, they, that's kind of the, the series of events 
the chronology that says, lends credence to the fact that this was politically motivated. And he goes on to say, Pete, that members of Congress celebrated the end of the plea deal and they, they took credit for it and claimed credit for the new tax charges that have been filed. It was because of us. It was our political pressure that got this done. They're like actually saying this. So vindictive and selective prosecution and separation of powers, very difficult to argue, very difficult to get uh, charges dismissed on. But Abby Lowell says in this filing that if this isn't vindictive and selective prosecution, I don't know what is, basically, to sum it up. Yeah. And what's interesting is that usually when you get these uh, a motion for vindictive or selective prosecution, that it's going to come along with a discovery request, right? We believe that it is vindictive and selective. And the way we're going to prove it, Your Honor, is we need discovery into all of these different topics to give us the information to be able to prove it. But Abby Lowell is saying, you don't need to do that. We've already got it. We have all the information we need. But what's interesting is even if, so one, it's the kind of thing that you know the judge may agree, in which case, great. Uh, or the judge may say, oh, I don't know, but it is a strong case and grant certain discovery things. And what's interesting is that for uh, the right. actual charged events, discovery is limited to those things which were charged. But the argument that Lowell is going to make or kind of makes a little bit in this filing is, hey, look, you know, the way I prove that this was selective and vindictive, I need the communications between Weiss and Bill Barr, between DOJ and the White House, between what's the knucklehead out in the Western District of uh, Pennsylvania, who is like the Rudy intake point. Scott Brady or something? Yeah, Scott Brady. I need all of the communications between them. I need the communications amongst the IRS agents and FBI agents and the local prosecutors. Not ordinarily things which might be privileged and or unrelated to the charged conduct, might be very relevant to a claim of selective prosecution. So he's trying to get in the door, I think, smartly saying, I don't need to do it. I can prove it with the public information that exists. But even if that's turned down, you know, trying to make an argument that it's so strong that, look, if you're not going to grant this, then the next best thing, you've got to let me see what's out there then, right? Well, and that's those Rule 17b subpoenas that he filed, right? right. Which we still don't right. have a decision on. Right. And, and there are, they're interesting things, right? Like somebody like Marcy Wheeler was pointing out that there was, I think, New York Times reporting that talks about David, some quote, again, this is New York Times reporting, I think, where David Weiss told somebody that, well, you know, I, I'm against prosecuting them because we wouldn't prosecute anybody else for conduct like this. Yeah. So if that is, you know, and the New York Times is not the Daily Mail, the New York Times is not the New York Post. If they're saying something like that, they are doing it because they have a well-sourced and credible basis to assert that. So that's, you know, that that from the person, from the special counsel, you know, particularly if they can find out who he made that get statement that witness. to, get them to testify, get Weiss up on the stand and say, did you tell anybody this? Now, he'll, he'll probably claim or try to claim some sort of privilege, but if he was not telling counsel, if it was not his wife or his clergy member, if he can't invoke some sort of you know, privilege to shield or, or prevent asking that question, I, it's going to be interesting to me how this all shakes out. And I still think there's a bunch of weirdness around the IRS agents, when they chose to become quote unquote whistleblowers, whether or not they talked to the press and when, what they disclosed to Congress and whether or not that was a true whistleblowing activity or whether they were disclosing protected taxpayer information. I think there's a lot of material in there that if uh, Hunter Biden's legal team finds a way to get a foothold in there is going to prove really problematic to the prosecution. So what you're saying is that even if this doesn't get dismissed pre-trial, this is the kind of stuff that can come in at trial. 
um, which I assume there will be motions in limine to keep it out. And then we can find out if that stuff would be admissible. Yeah. I mean, they're going to, there's going to be a lot more litigation, I assume, before uh, the government ever, the government is not going to want to produce any of those or most of those things that Hunter Biden's team has asked for. So there's going to be some pretrial litigation about whether or not that the subpoenas are granted, the scope of the subpoenas, what the areas that must be searched are, what can be excluded, what can be privileged, fighting over privileged logs about, you know, the government's going to assert something is covered by attorney-client privilege or internal deliberations or all the various things that you can assert uh, redacting information, not providing it to the other side based on it being privileged, and there'll be litigation about this. So again, the point being, this is going to slow this down, and I'm not entirely convinced that the government has a slam dunk case to keep all of it away from Hunter Biden and Abby Lowell. And there's other motions to dismiss too, yeah? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, like you said, there there were four different things. So uh, Biden and Abby Lowell filed as well a motion to dismiss on immunity grounds, arguing that the gun charges and the new tax charge, for that matter, were addressed in the diversion agreement. They also filed a motion to dismiss on constitutional grounds saying, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter because the gun law in question is unconstitutional. And they point to the Supreme Court's June 2022 ruling in a case called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, or you'll hear it called Bruin, which set a new standard to apply in judging the legality of gun restrictions imposed by governments, declaring that they must be consistent with the U.S., quote, historical tradition of firearm regulation. Uh, Now, one of the U.S. appeals court has already concluded that the drug-related statute at issue in Biden's case may be unconstitutional in some circumstances in light of the Bruin precedent. In a case involving a marijuana user, the New Orleans-based Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in August found that U.S. history and tradition, quote, does not justify disarming a sober citizen based exclusively on his past drug usage, unquote. Now, clearly, the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans and that entire circuit is not in Delaware, but the point being, there is the Supreme Court case, which applies to the entire land, and at least some other circuit courts of appeal, or at least the Fifth Circuit, has found that it's not constitutional, the law, the the, the, uh, firearm, the gun charge that uh, Hunter Biden is being charged with. And that one's going up to SCOTUS, and that could be, in the future, completely wiped out. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, the the absurdity of the way that, you know, the conservative Supreme Court has interpreted the, you know, the historical tradition of firearm regulation. Yes, because we had a strong at the found at the time of the founders, when they were writing the Federalist Papers and drafting the Constitution, we had all kinds of, you know, kind of legalized marijuana users and crack users who are going out trying to buy semi-automatic rifles with, you know, extended drum magazines that let them, you know, slap 60 rounds into a weapon and squeeze those off in under a couple of minutes. That's let's let's go to the historical tradition of firearm regulation as the founders right. envisioned it, you know. And so finally, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, let's, the irony uh, is hoist thick. them hoist them on their own petard, as it were, in that fancy French derived turn of phrase. Um, but I think it's a strong argument, and I think there's a real chance uh, that it will get some the gun charges at least potentially thrown out. And then there was uh, Abby Lowell also found a motion to dismiss, arguing that Weiss was appointed improperly. It's a it's an argument that's been you know presented before in other contexts. I I think he had to make it. I don't know that that is as strong in terms of the the legal chance of success. But you know there are four four motions out there, and you know Hunter Biden is not gently going away into some plea agreement. 
I like how you say other contexts without talking about how it's the fact that it's the Mueller probe that you worked on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know what? We haven't seen it in the in the Jack Smith. Uh, Trump never didn't file um, any motions to dismiss based on Jack Smith's appointment. Yeah. And I and, and Durham was also I mean, Durham of all of them was also I mean, because he was a U.S. attorney, I think, at the time he was appointed. So it like really fell afoul of the uh, appointment regulations, but that was- But they didn't even file because- the, Well, because Sussman Danchenko got there like, you know, six to eight hour unanimous jury acquittals and- But there's know, also modest- two provisions, the, the two that Merrick Garland kept citing that allowed David Weiss to bring charges anywhere uh, that say that special counsel- doesn't necessarily have to come from the or from outside the government either, uh, because I was all about that with Durham. I'm like, get just get just motion to dismiss. He's from inside the government, but apparently that's not a thing that ever wins um, because there's some provision that allows that allows it. Um, right. And I I wish I could put my finger on the on the actual provision. I'll find it and and we can talk about it next week. But um, yeah, I, th- I thought that that was uh, a very weak argument, um, but. Again, like you said, got to make it, but nobody's made it in the Jack Smith case. Interesting. All right, everybody, we have to take another quick break, but we have a lot more to get to. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA, as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. 
All right, welcome back. Thanks to some more new patrons. Donna Cobb, Chris Wagnon, Wendy Hughes, Dan Murphy, and Jennifer Chichowski. Jen, I hope I got your name right. I think that is. But again, thank all of you so much. You, you truly are partners in this that make it all possible from everybody working behind the scenes uh, to putting together these scripts, to recording it, to getting it out. You are the ones that make this go. So thank you for your support. Uh, you are absolutely vital members of the team and cannot thank you enough. Uh, so having said that, let's go down to Georgia, where we have several updates, including the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who got a hold of the apology letters, you know, <laughs> letters doing a very heavy amount of lifting right now, and of those who have pled guilty. Now, the apology letters written by two of the attorneys who struck plea agreements in Fulton County, uh, the election interference case, are just one sentence long. And handwritten on line notebook paper, like a kid in detention. Put so your Paul name up wrote, in the right corner. <laughs> see, yeah, it's like Bart. I, I was I envisioned for each of these Bart Simpson at the chalkboard at the beginning of the Simpsons. <laughs> I mean, it's that short. So here's Sydney Powell's quote: "I apologize for my actions in connection with the events in Coffee County." That's it, Allison. That's it. That's it. Yeah, I apologize for my actions in connection with the events in Coffee County. Now, Ken Chesbro almost doubled that quote. I apologize to the citizens of the state of Georgia and of Fulton County for my involvement in count 15 of the indictment, unquote. And then finally, Scott Hall wrote, although I certainly did not mean to violate any laws, <laughs> I now realize that I did and I've accepted responsibility for my actions. Yeah, and but you just Jenna totally didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I see them as they're writing it. They're writing it with one hand and behind their back, they have their finger crossed because, you know, no, no, you didn't say no tickbacks. So, and of course, Jenna Ellis read hers aloud in court as she, you know, cried and did the, how am I? The lady who to told me to cry more on national cry television? More, cry more, cry more. Yes, her, her, who was just, by the way, I think just referred for additional bar discipline. So that's great. She's, she's Wonderful. reaping everything she sowed. Now, look, I, I, there, there is a legal, I think, reason for this, right? I yeah. mean, some of this is, and Fonnie Willis said as much, right? So yeah, well, I mean, why, why might you do that? Well, I mean, if I'm a lawyer for, let's say, uh, Sidney Powell, I, I'm actually probably a better lawyer than she is, and I don't have a law degree, nor have I taken a bar exam anywhere. But I would say, you know, you're an unindicted co-conspirator in D.C. in a federal case. How about you make this as short as possible and don't say anything at, outside of the, you know, just yet you're sorry. That That would be my advice to anybody writing an apology letter. Um, Ken Chesbro, my involvement in count 15. Remember when his lawyer went on TV and said, oh yeah, he totally did this uh, count 15 thing and he's <laughs> pleading guilty and like, and he's probably like, ah, oh, shit, now I got to get a, now I got to get a, a rail pass, they call it in Europe. And I got to go to Arizona, Nevada, Michigan. I got to go everywhere now because my lawyer just admitted to everybody that, <laughs> that I did this on national television. So he put that in there, but I mean, yeah, I, if I'm their lawyer, I'm like, yeah, just put, I'm super sorry, the end. Right. And yeah, and, and for Ch Chesbro in particular, I mean, this is something you don't want to, anything you write is going to be seized upon, whether it is in Arizona or Nevada or Michigan or wherever the case may be, Wisconsin now too, that an attorney is going to say, well, isn't it true that you admitted to X? And if X is a big page and a half long thing, there's a lot in that page and a half that can be used to sort of undercut your credibility in front of the jury, where if it's short and sweet, like... My involvement in count 15, it's, it's, you know, it's not great, but it's a lot better than some, you know, very verbose, 
long-winded apology for everything under the sun, which frankly, all of them should be doing. But I, there's, there's good legal reasons for them personally and also for potential prosecutions elsewhere uh, for them not to do it, certainly in Chesbro's case. Yeah, for real. Um, and uh, staying here in Fulton County, um, as we know, Mark Meadows appealed to have his case taken out of state court and put into federal court. He lost <laughs> that at the district court level. Uh, and then uh, the hearing happened on Friday, just this past Friday. And law professor Anthony Creese characterized the hearing this way. And I, I hope I'm saying Anthony Creese's last name correctly. And here's here's what is terrible of me. I sat with him face to face and interviewed him and asked him how to pronounce his last name. And it is gone out of my head. So <laughs> I do apologize. Um, but he 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 characterized the hearing this way on Twitter. He said, Chief Judge Pryor, who, by the way, extremely conservative judge uh, down in the 11th Circuit. He's the chief judge. He hammered on the textualism question and was skeptical of arguments that former officers are eligible for removal under federal court. Judge Pryor nodded when the DA argued that federal removal is meant to protect federal authority and ongoing federal operations. It's not a shield for former officers. Pryor was nodding his head when the DA um, office argued that. That's Donald Wakeford. And he effectively also argued that the statute must be read for what the statute says, not a, not reworked to fit some other purpose. Now, Judge Rosenbaum was noticeably concerned about the chilling effect on government officials who would be subject to prosecution upon the termination of their federal service. Wakeford for the DA said the statute it says what it says, and this is a matter of prosecutorial discretion. It says that it's to protect federal authority, ongoing operations. If you're a former officer, it shouldn't count. Now, Meadows's counsel thought that he had a good line for a second, arguing that if he knew he could be prosecuted in state court, that his conduct would have been different. And Pryor, the super conservative judge, scoffed, raised an eyebrow, and then asked if that was actually true. Would trial venue really have had an effect on your behavior? <laughs> and Meadows's counsel focused also on the idea that uh, the federal administration and federal authority would be undermined if state courts were left to handle former federal officials' defenses and questions of federal law. And Pryor and Rosenbaum both just flatly disagreed with that. So Professor Kreese then said, it was not a good day for Meadows at all. I suspect he will lose three to zero. The question is whether the 11th Circuit will closely track the district court ruling, possibly evading Supreme Court review, or if Pryor will nudge the panel toward categorically keeping former officers out. Well, Professor, we have your answer breaking today as we record this. The court denied unanimously, three to nothing, his motion. And they did it on both grounds. This is a double whammy, Pete. They said removal does not apply to former former officials. So nope, just doesn't apply to former officials. That bodes poorly for Donald Trump's immunity fight coming up in the Supreme Court and the D.C. Appeals Court. And they also said that what he did is not part of his official duties as chief of staff, even if we did this, you know, it, it applied to, to former federal officers. What you did is not part of your job because the White House chief of staff has no role in supervising state elections. And by the way, Pete, neither does the president. And they also said the chief of staff may not engage in electioneering on behalf of a political campaign. That's a violation of the Hatch Act. Yay, the Hatch Act. Um, so 
you know, my question here is, what will he do when he loses his appeal? He'll, I know he'll appeal to SCOTUS probably, yep. but when he loses, Fannie Willis has said she, he's, he's exempt from getting a deal. But him, Rudy, and Trump, no deal for you. Remember, we talked about that last week. Mm-hmm. So, like, what's he going to do? Yeah, no, I think he gets ready for trial. I mean, I have no doubt that he's going to appeal to the Supreme Court. The good news about Pryor, now remember, Pryor, yeah, he's conservative, but he's also sat on the uh, the panel when uh, Judge Eileen Cannon had appointed the, uh, ridiculously appointed the special master to go through the material that the Fed sees from Mar-a-Lago when the 11th Circuit, because they also oversee uh, Florida, utterly just chopped her apart in that decision. I mean, not not just a mild rebuke, essentially is like, are, are you sure you're barred and licensed to practice law because this is some of the worst uh, decision-making we've ever seen. That Pryor was on that panel, if I recall correctly. And the advantage is Pryor, much like, you know, when you get Judge Ludig, now he's retired, but he was also a well-respected conservative judge. So if he appeals this, you know, Pryor, the reputation that Pryor enjoys on the Supreme Court, particularly amongst the conservative side of that, and, you know, Alito is lost and gone forever, and probably Thomas as well. But, you know, between Kavanaugh, between certainly Amy Coney Barrett, Roberts, uh, you know, that I think has some influence when they see how he voted. And the good news is, you know, there's a belt and suspender aspect to this. So even if they have concerns that, hey, you know, maybe you should be shielded if this was part of, uh, you know, your former federal service, it doesn't matter because this was not any part of your official executive service duty. So even if yep. they cut down one of those two things, the one thing that caused uh, the one Rosenbaum, Judge Rosenbaum, to have that concern, even if you grant that concern, you've still got the point that, look, this this had nothing to do with your formal <laughs> duties. And nobody can make an argument that it does. And so I don't think it ends well at the Supreme Court. I, I don't think Fonnie Willis is going to sort of like uh, carelessly make statements that, you know, Trump and Rudy and Meadows are not going to get pleased. Mm. So I think if he fails, he goes and gets ready for trial. Yeah. Uh, and maybe finally picks up the phone and calls Jack Smith if he hasn't already. Uh, <laughs> I got to think he has. I got to think right? he has. I know. I mean, I've been saying for he's got to be. He has to be, right? Like he has yeah, to Yeah, and there's a whole other, you know, can of worms. And you may have talked about this on Jack, but there were, and this show is already going to go too long. But there's New York Times and started by CNN reporting over the weekend that, uh, or late last week, that a binder, like a 10-inch binder, 2,000 pages of highly classified documents are missing, gone. And it was so bad that the government briefed the Senate Intel Committee last year saying, we can't find it. And according to Cassidy Hutchinson's book, she swears that Mark Meadows took it with him when he left. And so, mm-hmm. you know, whether Meadows has that or not, whether he's already told Jack Smith or anybody in the FBI what he did with it or what he knows about it, I've got to believe there, there's too much there of too much kind of critical importance for him not to make a deal. But who knows? Yeah. To not be an unindicted co-conspirator in the D.C. case? For real. I don't. I, yeah, that's right. And that's weird, right? Yep. So. I don't know. So anyway, staying staying on the uh, sort of federal level, uh, Trump filed a motion to dismiss on First Amendment grounds, and uh, this is up in New York. And then Judge McAfee also denied Clark's motion to dismiss. Oh no, this is down in Georgia. I'm sorry. He denied Clark's motion to dismiss on personal jurisdiction. Now this is reporting is coming from Hugo Lowell at the Guardian. Uh, Donald Trump's lawyer asked the judge on Monday, this is last week, to throw out the Georgia criminal case over his efforts to overturn the 2020 election results in the state. 
contending the indictment violated the former president's First Amendment rights by charging him for so-called core political speech. The motion to dismiss the election interference case by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis was similar in scope and theory to Trump's request to throw out the federal indictment in Washington, D.C. that was already rejected earlier this month. The 19-page motion sought to reframe the indictment as an attempt to criminalize Trump's political speech, <laughs> Yeah, arguing that the former president's repeated lies that widespread fraud corrupted the vote count were merely supposedly aimed at prompting investigations by state legislatures. The motion also argued that Trump's claim of election fraud were protected by the Constitution's First Amendment because the U.S. Supreme Court had previously decided the government could not criminalize speech on disputed political issues just because it determined the views to be false. Now- Wait, wait, wait. So he's actually <laughs> saying, I, I lied, I, but right. that's not a crime. Right. Okay. And it was not, not so much I lied, but I was just trying to generate uh, investigations and prompt, uh, you know, I, I'm just, it's the Tucker Carlson. I'm just asking questions. No, 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 you weren't. No, you weren't. <laughs> you, you were corruptly and illegally trying to change the vote outcome. And so, uh, look, I think he's going to have, he does face a steep uphill battle to have the case dismissed. You know, and, and that particularly because, you know, I'm sure as you talked about in Jack, after U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin in D.C. earlier denied Trump's almost identical motion to dismiss with a detailed 48-page opinion that cut down the same First Amendment claims. And I'm certain, yeah. and we've seen evidence of this, you know, the courts are all watching and reading what each other is saying. You know, New York is watching D.C., is watching Atlanta, and they're aware, one, that Trump is not only are there similar issues, but that Trump is making the same arguments. And so when you get courts coming out with rulings that are well cited and well thought through and, you know, following various lines of argument, you can read and adapt those, expand or, or reject them. But there is a confluence. And I, I'm sure at a minimum, the clerks of these various judges are closely watching what's what's going on in all the other jurisdictions. Yeah. And there's a ton of rulings out there already that say you're not immune just because you're a former president. And that's mostly for civil stuff right now. In fact, it's all for civil stuff right now. We still have to do the criminal. We have to answer the criminal immunity question, either with the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court or both. Um, and there's been a ton of, of rulings issued that this is not part of your job. Going back to, I remember Mo Brooks in the Blasingame lawsuit, which has been allowed to go forward in which Trump has been denied immunity. Mo Brooks was like, the DOJ should jump in here and, you know, in the ring for me. And, and the DOJ is like, bro, first of all, you were campaigning. Second of all, even if you weren't, it is not part of your job <laughs> to overthrow the government. <laughs> like, I've seen this ruling so many times. And because of that, because of all the denials of civil immunity, because of all the denials of this is part of your job, so you get to go to federal court now, uh, all of that leads me to believe that there is 0% chance that the Supreme Court allows or grants Trump some kind of immunity, criminal immunity. I just don't see it happening. But yeah, Andy and I'll stay on top of that. Also, in an interview with uh, this week with the Associated Press, Fonnie Willis declined to say whether she or her team had been in touch with Jack Smith. As we know, he filed federal charges and election interference case against Trump in D.C. She also raised the possibility that more of Trump's 18 co-defendants could take plea deals, further paring down the number who could go to trial with him. 
Willis and her team have said they want to have a single trial for the rest of the defendants. Superior Court Judge down in Fulton County, Scott McAfee, he expressed skepticism about the idea of trying too many people at once and said earlier this month that even 12 people at once could be a stretch. But Willis disagrees with the judge on that, saying, my answer would be, it's whittled down now to a size we can try, but I don't know that all 15 will be at the table once we get through this process. Her limit right now to file, she's asked for a a limit to file or to to have a plea agreement, which is in June. So they have till June to plead right now, unless that changes. Um, Fonnie Willis also sat down with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and indicated she could take an active role in the courtroom. She's like, you might see Fonnie Willis in there. She also suggested she was open to moving her proposed trial date should Trump's legal calendar in 2024 change. I'm sure it will. When asked if she's concerned about the fact that only four people have taken plea deals, she said, what I've seen in my practice for these 28 years that I've been practicing criminal law is that typically it is after pretrial motions when you get the most amount of pleas. And then when asked whether she would seek to punish Trevion Cootie, remember her remarks on video, Instagram Live, going after Ruby Freeman? Um, she was vague. She just said, the DA is patient. That's all she said. Um, <laughs> she also described the inquiry opened by the U.S. House Judiciary Committee, which has been probing Willis's contact with Jack Smith and the congressional panel that investigated the January 6th insurrection, as foolish. She calls it foolish. She indicated she would be open to testifying before a committee publicly, quote, before all of the American people and not behind some closed door that people can misrepresent and lie about what was said, unquote. So she knows the drill <laughs> goes on yeah. in Congress. I mean, look, I think there is little doubt that if not she, that somebody on her staff has likely been in contact with, uh, if not Jack Smith, somebody on his staff. I think it is just by where all these things stand, the very statements that are being made, I would be shocked if there weren't uh, some sort of contact. Nobody's directing anybody else to do something or not do something, but I, I have to believe that there is some contact at this point. And again, I, I, her experience is my experience as well. Now, clearly she has a ton more of experience in prosecutions and certainly has all of the experience in Fulton County, but absolutely you wait until you get through pretrial motions. And usually, you know, as a defendant and any good attorney is going to say, look, let's go and try and get motions to dismiss or motions to limit admissible evidence. And inevitably, or not inevitably, but largely or frequently when those all fail, that's when you get a defense attorney and defendant that makes saying, sense. We tried everything we can. We lost. It was a long shot, but we tried. So, okay, let's talk mm -hmm. about it. So I would be, I would also be highly surprised if there are not multiple additional pleas by the time uh, this rolls around into, you know, late spring of next year. So, yeah. I and speaking of somebody who got a motion to dismiss denied. <laughs> <laughs> You you mentioned Jeff Clark, Captain Captain Underpants. So right, last thing while we're before we leave Fulton County, the last item. Let's turn our uh, gaze to the man in the underwear in his driveway. Uh, Judge McAfee no, has denied Jeffrey Clark's motion to dismiss his charges on lack of personal jurisdiction. The judge wrote, setting aside the vigorous critiques of the state's case, the defendant's legal argument boils down to this. Mr. Clark is not subject to criminal prosecution in Georgia because the indictment fails to satisfy a threshold showing of personal jurisdiction under the due process clause. Uncovering no persuasive appellate precedent in support of this creative theory, further briefing and oral argument is unnecessary, and the motion is denied. 
and the sad trombone, uh, <laughs> you know, emanates forth from the courthouse. Yeah, Katie Fang was like, uh, if a judge calls your arguments creative, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not a happy word. That, that's not being used in a happy sense. That is not that is not a positive on the plus side of the kindergarten report card of your child. Oh, he's very creative. No, 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 no. That's not that's not what that means. Mm-mm-mm. No, sorry, Captain Underpants. Although uh, Captain Underpants is my nickname for Dershowitz, but I mean, I guess it it applies here as well. Um, <laughs> It's just, you know, that always brings up that image in my head. And I'm like, thanks, Pete, for bringing that Mm. uh, image Mm. back to my head (laughs) of him standing in his driveway in his chonies. Can I get my own pants? No, 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 you can't. (laughs) Stay right here. Oh, all right. Um, A little bit of just schadenfreude. Nothing wrong with that. We have a little bit more to get to, but we have to take another quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Our final list of patrons to thank today. Sheila and Jason. Winter is coming and so is Justice Myers. Thank you. John Huntington. Shake your booty. Love it. Uh, Shake your booty. That's very good. Gary Whaley or Whaley. Um, Georgine Jones. That's a very pretty name. And Amy Spear. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts, from the cockles of our hearts. Uh, we really appreciate all that you do to keep this show going. All right, uh, Pete, Trump has racked up some more court losses, including New York denying his gag order appeal. That's the Judge Angoron 
gag order where him, where Trump and his lawyers can't say anything bad about his principal law clerk, the court staff. So they denied his appeal. And then they also said, you also don't get to appeal. They didn't grant him leave of court to appeal to the highest court in New York, which is actually called the New York Court of Appeals. Um, so they don't call it their Supreme Court. But that's it. That's the end of the line. The gag order stands. Um, now, in the actual uh, New York Attorney General civil fraud trial, uh, after chickening out of testifying, uh, Trump uh, decided he wouldn't go up on the stand or he was vigorously talked out of it by his attorneys. Of course, he blames the gag order, saying he's gagged, so he he can't go on the stand and tell his truth. You know, okay. So uh, the defense has rested because he's not going to, he didn't testify. Neither did Eric Trump, by the way. Briefs are being prepped. Closing arguments will take place on January 11th. Um, so that's going down. A New York court has denied Trump's motion to dismiss the E. Jean Carroll case on immunity grounds. There's another immunity uh, dismissal or uh, denial, I should say. Um, that trial is scheduled to start, uh, gosh, five days after closing arguments in the New York Attorney General's trial. <laughs> that starts on January 16th. And here's what the court wrote in the E. Jean case. Accordingly, we affirm the July 5th, 2023 order of the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York, Lewis Kaplan, the judge, denying Trump's motion for summary judgment insofar as it rejected the defendant's presidential immunity defense and denied his request for leave to amend his answer to add presidential immunity as a defense. <laughs> we, we likewise affirm uh, the district court's August 7th, 2023 order insofar as it struck Trump's presidential immunity defense from his answer to plaintiff's amended complaint. So he tried to sneak it in in an answer to an amended complaint, and they struck it, uh, and they affirmed that. We dismiss, for lack of appellate jurisdiction, the appeal of the district court's July 5th, 2023 order, insofar as it's determined that the defendant's statements about the plaintiff were defamatory, per se. So his thing, that's like six different denials in one fun thing. Uh, and this is also breaking right now. Uh, Trump has lost a fifth bid for a direct verdict in the New York Attorney General case. Remember, he kept saying, we want a verdict right now. Give us a verdict right now. This is the fifth attempt to get a direct verdict. Angeron laughed him out of court, says a lie is still a lie. Here's a little uh, excerpt. Uh, an expert witness, by the way. Remember the guy he paid nearly a million dollars to to yes. testify on his behalf, yes. Trump did? Here, this is from Reuters. An expert witness paid nearly a million dollars by Donald Trump to testify at his New York civil fraud trial, quote, lost all credibility by doggedly justifying the former U.S. president's business records. That's what Angoran said in this filing on Monday, <laughs> quote, all that his testimony proves is that for a million or so dollars, some experts will say whatever you want them to say. That's, <laughs> that's what Judge Angoran said. That sounds like some shit I would say. Yeah. <laughs> right you know but what? he's he's backing it up he gets to keep his money yeah he gets to keep his money the people the, the people who look like utter fucking fools again i'm sorry i need to save the swearing for later for the bonus i, I won't let you down for patrons but alina haba yet again these are the people like hey the expert he's taken that 880 whatever it was to the bank and you know even if he's lost all credibility uh per a court order you can, you know, sit fat, dumb, and happy with that. But it's just this stellar, all-star studded, elite strike force New York uh, legal team that Trump has is burning through money, uh, racking up loss after loss after loss. Hmm. 
A million bucks down the drain. I, I wonder if he gave Alina Haba her million bucks for the sanctions that she did in, in the case that know, was against... Who was that lawsuit yeah, she, against, Pete? Uh, I don't, yeah, I, yeah, a bunch of, yeah, yours truly and, you know, about 20 <laughs> other people. She was actually, Haba had the audacity. She was out there bragging about it. I think, yeah, I don't know if it was at CPAC or where it was, but talking about how, like, nobody's heard of this and we were fined a million dollars and the mainstream media isn't telling you about it. And it's like, are you really, this is something you want to brag about? This, you're such a crappy attorney? It was that America First thing in Phoenix yeah, that was that... Uh, Mike Flynn joint or whatever. Right, and Bannon's there and all, all kinds of, like the shaman was there and it just, you know, I, it, I, it boggles my mind that if I would be so ashamed, so embarrassed as an attorney, if I had faced a million dollars. And it wasn't just the million dollars, it was what Judge Middlebrooks wrote about their filing and how abysmal and amateurish and abusive it was. I mean, it just, it, it is full of, it, it, it will show up in law school classes across the nation as what not to do. And yet she's mm-hmm. somehow trumpeting that as like, oh, look at, look at me. I'm so good. Like, you are a moron. I mean, you truly are a shameless idiot to try and like wave this around as some great triumph and, you know, the, the deep state or the, you know, lamestream media not talking about it. It's like, oh, they, they talked about it. And they said you're a goddamn moron. Let, let's not let's not mince words here. So <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, but yet more 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 fines to come. I'm sure. Uh, mm. <laughs> so, but wait, there there's plenty more. Let's let's head out now to the Midwest to the great state of Michigan, where the preliminary exams took place in court for six of the fraudulent electors that were indicted by the Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Chesbro's cooperating there, so and, and one of the electors seems also to have cut a deal. This reporting comes from Craig Mauger at the Detroit News. Testifying in court on Thursday, top Michigan Republicans linked the organization and execution of a false certificate directly to Trump's campaign. While the Trump campaign has previously been tied to the overall strategy of crafting electoral certificates in seven battleground states, The testimony Thursday described campaign staffers as being involved in recruiting attendees and running the meeting of the false electors in Lansing on December 14th, 2020. Judge Kristen Simmons heard two days of testimony wrapping up Thursday. The preliminary exams for six of the Republicans will continue on February 13th. Now, the revelations come on the second day of preliminary examinations for six of the Republican electors as Attorney General Nessel's office pursues criminal forgery charges against those whose names appeared on the false certificates. So again, these aren't, this isn't a civil trial. These are criminal forgery charges. Tony Zamet, the former communications director for the Michigan Republican Party, testified that it was Sean Flynn, no relation to uh, the uh, disgraced general, a lawyer for Trump's campaign in Michigan who gaveled in the meeting in the basement of party headquarters on December 14, 2020. Zamet also testified that Flynn had been directed to submit the false certificate to the federal government. For the first time Thursday, Terry Lynn Land, who served as Michigan's top election official from 2003 through 2010, explained why she didn't attend the December 14, 2020 gathering, despite being one of the 16 Republicans originally picked at a state convention to serve as a GOP presidential elector. Land, who was the former secretary of state, said because the board of state canvassers determined Democrat Joe Biden won Michigan's election, she didn't understand why the GOP electors were meeting (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and no one detailed to her why the event was even necessary. 
<laughs> Continuing on, though, Laura Cox, the chairwoman of the Michigan GOP in 2020, testified Thursday she had concerns over the certificate Republicans signed on December 14th, claiming to be the state's presidential electors and a plan to sleep overnight in the Capitol in support of the effort. <laughs> The, ex- the exams for nine other Republican electors are scheduled to take place next year. Nestle's office dropped the charges against one of the 16 electors, James Renner of Lansing, as part of a cooperation deal uh, earlier in October. Yeah. And speaking of cooperation deals, this is from the same reporter at the Detroit Press. The, the top advisors within Trump's campaign were aware of concerns in early December 2020 that criminal charges could result from submitting certificates falsely claiming the Republicans won battleground states. They knew it was illegal. This is according to documents obtained by the Detroit News. The emails and text messages among campaign officials and volunteers showed supporters of Trump's bid to overturn the 2020 election worked to ease the worries about political prosecution in Pennsylvania and New Mexico, but they declined to act on the concerns in Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and Wisconsin. That's according to records from Ken Chesbro, a lawyer who aided the Trump campaign. It was a group of Republicans in Pennsylvania who had hesitations about signing the certificates falsely claiming to be Pennsylvania's official presidential electors. And they voiced their legal concerns during a December 12th conference call on this is 2020 that featured Rudy Giuliani uh, mm-hmm. and Mike Roman, a Trump campaign official. And that's according to emails about the conversation. Quote, the electors are concerned about the partisan AG targeting them, wrote Chesbro, <laughs> a lawyer who was also involved in the conference call. That was Josh Sapiro, by the way, who's now the governor. Um, and he, that's an email to Matthew Morgan, an attorney for Trump's campaign. Chesbro's like, the electors in Pennsylvania are a little worried that this is illegal. <laughs> <laughs> so Chesbro decided to write alternative language for the Pennsylvania and New Mexico electoral certificates stipulating Republicans in those states weren't the official electors, but might later be determined to be the uh, electors. And that's according to his emails. Quote, Mike, I think the language at the start of the certificate should be changed in all the states. That's what Chesbro said to Mike Roman on December 12th. (laughs) He's like, this should be probably just be changed in all the states. Let's look at that language carefully. Roman said, I don't. (laughs) coming to the divergent path in the woods with the path to like out of jail and the path go directly to jail roman chose poorly yeah and chesbro's like man i can help drafting the language for the rest of the states and roman said fuck these guys (laughs) oh no oh no mike fuck you (laughs) Now, uh, by the way, Mike Roman is the guy who in Michigan was, uh, I, I think, in the Jack Smith uh, filing, the guy who was um, responsible for, quote unquote, starting a riot. At yeah, the, who's, at who's the, the unknown co-conspirator? Is it two? There's, which, there's one co-conspirator where the jury's still out on who it is, and there's some That's co-conspirator six, and I was like, it's either Mike Roman or Epstein, but Mike Roman was referred to separately without a number in a filing uh, true. recently. And later on, true, true. And so I think that six now is Epstein uh, and Roman is this other guy who may be cooperating, but Roman, and it might be because Cheesebro is cooperating and has all these text messages because <laughs> he's cooperating in the other 
five states. Because he wants to go to jail in Michigan rather than going to jail in the federal system somewhere. That uh, I mean, Chesbro is cooperating in all of the states, right? And so it, it, it would make no sense that he's not cooperating with Jack Smith. But he is an un- unindicted co-conspirator in that indictment. Chesbro is. Mike Roman, I don't believe is, but I think Mike Roman uh, was the guy mentioned in a recent filing about starting a riot at the TFC Center, TCF Center in in, right. in Detroit. Right, where they yes, where they were doing the vote counting. Right. So yeah, here's Chesbro, like because we've talked about this, you know, uh, changing the language, like oh well, it looks like Pennsylvania and New Mexico are cool because they said we're contingent electors, we're not the right. actual electors, we're not trying to say we're the real electors. And Chesbro apparently went to Mike Roman of the Trump campaign and said we should do this language for all the states. And Roman's like, fuck those guys. So right. oops. Yeah. And I mean, Oops. it says, you know, a little bit of a little bit of credit to Chesbro. He's trying to sit there and say, OK, you know, we need to move away from something that's clearly false and hedge it a little bit. And, you know, credit to him for trying to do it. And then, you know, Roman, F these guys. No, no, Mike, F you. I think he's about to find out. That's when Chesbro should have said something done something if you see something say something chesbro yeah, that was no, your moment no no he's he could have been he could have been somebody in the trump doj and oh but you could have had a uh you'd have been a mm, okay yeah 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 there's not going to be a trump doj so all right uh that is our show so much happening today i'm checking right now to see if anything else is breaking i'm sure between now this the time that we're recording this and when this show airs wednesday something else will come out We'll cover it on next week's uh, episode. And this weekend for patrons, our bonus episode, what what did we uh, agree we were going to discuss? Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas. The new ProPublica reporting. Shockingly enough, Clarence Thomas essentially set up a, uh, you know, which for all intents and purposes is a deal where he expressed concern that he was to a, to a, a congressman. You know, I don't think I'm making enough money and I might not, I might need to leave the court if I don't find a way, if you don't increase my salary. And shockingly enough, after that, all these rich donors started suddenly showering with favors. So Weird. We'll and he stopped that. disclosing oh, yeah. them on his financial disclosure forms, which are very confusing, Pete. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, not nearly as confusing <laughs> as the Constitution, but, you know, very confusing financial yeah. disclosure forms. So we'll, yeah, we'll unpack that for patrons. My favorite, Jay, Jay Bookman on Twitter said, Clarence Thomas has so many sponsors, he should have to wear logos on his robe like a NASCAR driver. <laughs> Man, you so really we'll, like Tide. We'll, 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 break, we'll break that down for patrons. We will, and, uh, and Pete will have his swearing how, jacket on. I know yeah, it, oh my I know God. This. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> Clarence, we can dive into Ginny's text to Mark Meadows. We can talk about whether or not Clarence is going to recuse when all this Trump stuff finds its way up to the Supreme Court. Hint, mm. he's not. <laughs> he recused in that Eastman tune in. case. Tune in. Sign up. Sign up and tune in. <laughs> yeah, sign up and tune in. You'll also be eligible to get the RSVP to our thank you party uh, MSW Media get together in DC in April. It's going to be beautiful in April in DC. So I hope we get to see you there. Thank you again. Thanks to our patrons. Thanks to our listeners. We appreciate you. Uh, you make this possible. And we will see you next week. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Struck. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.
SW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.